Welcome to the Think Queerly podcast. I'm your host, Darren Steele. Today's episode is a discussion with two guests, and we're going to look at how we could possibly reconfigure Pride in 2020 and beyond to savor Black lives. So I sit down with uh, Jeffrey Yovanone, who, if you've been listening for some time, has been a guest on the show a number of times, and Olivia Nuama, who is the former executive director of Pride Toronto. Now, we have, I've talked about on the podcast, many of you listening are aware that there are multiple intersections of inequalities, systemic norms, laws, attitudes and ideologies that demonstrate it's never one issue all by itself that's the cause of prejudice, bigotry, racism, right? And with COVID-19 and the pandemic, we've been disrupted so entirely in our lives and society. It's been a tipping point and a breaking point for now the Black Lives Matters movement and anyone in support of trying to end racism against people of color. Now, over the course of this episode, we go really deep and with often a lot of vulnerability into the necessary potential paradigm shift that many of us are seeing happen right before our eyes and that we take part of in this conversation today to have an open and an honest dialogue about how we can make the space that we inhabit a better one for black people, especially if you're a white male and a white gay male like myself. And how we can even make that better still for people of color who are part of the LGBT community. And you'll hear Olivia talk about why it's really a choice of one or the other and never really possible to be both as a black person. Let me tell you a bit about my two guests before we get into the discussion. So Olivia Nuama is a community builder, a mother, artist, a DJ. She was born and raised in Toronto, and she earned an undergraduate degree in international development and social anthropology from the University of Toronto, and a master's in social anthropology of children and childhood development from Brunel University. She has 25 years of experience working in both the government and nonprofit sectors. And in 2010, she was appointed executive director of the Atkinson Foundation to promote social and economic justice. And she left Toronto to undertake a PhD in computer science at Warwick University in the UK. She's an accomplished executive leader, policy expert, and social justice advocate. She worked on former British Prime Minister Tony Blair's pledge to end poverty in the United Kingdom by 2020, and most recently was the executive director of Inner City Family Health, an organization that delivers health care to homeless communities in Toronto's downtown East End, before becoming the executive director of Pride Toronto. Jeffrey Yovanone is an activist, scholar, writer, educator, and researcher from Buffalo, New York. He holds a PhD in American Studies and specializes in gender and LGBTQ studies. He is the creator of the blog Queer History for the People and a columnist uh, for Think Queerly, my publication on Medium. He is a member of the Buffalo Niagara LGBTQ History Project. As of June 2020, he will be a monthly contributor to Rainbow Country. It's a top LGBTQ radio show and podcast that I've been featured on as well uh, in Toronto. His segment focuses on discussing current LGBTQ issues from a historical perspective. All right, this is a really important interview. 
I hope you enjoy it and that you learn as much as I did, um, especially from Olivia. Thanks for listening, and here we go. All right, we're here having a discussion about reconfiguring pride with Olivia Nuama and Jeffrey Yovanone, and welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Hi, hi, Darren. Well, I'm really happy to have the both of you here, and um, I want to open with something that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago, and I did on my podcast. I mean, I might as well self-reference myself, right? It's my show. <laughs> but I, I just came across it this morning because somebody highlighted it on my article this morning. I always think those are signs from the universe that you should listen. Um, so I had written, pride will always be political so long as it continues to exist. Pride is a celebration because it is celebrated, is a priori political because of its origins. Even to those to whom pride only seems a big party, the nature and the existence of pride is dependent upon its foundations as a political movement. Olivia, I maybe want to hand that off to you. Um, some thoughts on that and, and tell us a little bit about a back, your background and who you are and what you bring to this discussion about the possibility of reconfiguring pride. Wow. Well, first of all, uh, Darren, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, and um, I guess for me, um, I came uh, into uh, Pride through Pride Toronto, but um, more importantly, I suppose, I came into Pride through um, my own kind of advocacy work in the area of just sort of, you know, social equity, social and economic equity, if you will. And I, you know, bring a very um, uh, intersectional approach in that um, I'm a member of the community, I'm also a mother, I'm also a Black woman, and um, all of those things matter to me. Um, and they matter to me in the context of pride, where um, I think the conversation is had less often, and when it is had, um, uh, it, it doesn't fully capture um, my own experience um, and my own desires from what I, I might want from an LGBTQ2 uh, plus movement. So I suppose mm -hmm. more broadly, my history is that of being a kind of um, campaigner um, and uh, advocate, if you like, for um, issues around equity and specifically uh, to the LGBTQ community. Um, I suppose I would like to think that um, I bring, or trying to bring um, a perspective that centers me and people like me uh, in the conversation uh, about queerness. Wonderful, thank you. And Jeffrey, thanks for being on the show again. You've been with us a number of times and um, last year we had a, a longer discussion with uh, Ken Galt. We were talking about the origins of Stonewall and the myths yes. surrounding that, but perhaps, um, whether touching on that or how I opened and a brief introduction again of, of, of who you are. Sure. So uh, I'm a historian, a writer, an educator from uh, Buffalo, New York, and uh, much of my research focuses on LGBTQ history, uh, particularly um, gay liberation, the 1960s and the 1970s, um, other social movements connected to 
the gay liberation movement. Uh, and of course, that is where our you know modern um, notion of pride uh, is coming out of um, that that time period. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting how last year was the the Stonewall um, anniversary, and so I, th- I think this year as well, um, with everything that's going on with the uh, pandemic and and Pride celebrations being virtual, here we have another um, opportunity to think about. Um, what um, pride is, what it has become, uh, how far is it from from its roots, uh, and I, I think it's it's so important that that we have these conversations because much of my work, um, you know, as someone who is from uh, a mid sized city, you know, not from New York City, San Francisco, trying to find myself um, in the narrative. Um, getting away from you know that that focus that right everything happened in New York City or everything happened in in San Francisco and moving towards a much more um, holistic approach and of course you know also when we we do that when we get away from the mainstream narrative of um, pride uh, it also forces us to think about how much of that narrative has been whitewashed and I think gives us the opportunity to bring in some other uh, perspectives and and think about um, what what happens when when we do that in terms of uh, thinking about what we would like pride to be. Exactly. Now, I think it's relevant to say the date. It's June 12th, 2020, Friday, when we're recording this. And the last couple of podcasts I've done, I've spoken in some way about COVID-19, how it's been the most disruptive event in the 21st century. And it's it's showing us so many things. We're seeing tipping points everywhere uh, that are drawing attention to not only pride, because as you said, Jeffrey, pride is going virtual pretty much all over the world. What does that mean? Who shows up? Who's protesting? What's changed? What's different? And one of the things that I've been talking about um, for some time now, but also more and more as I observe and witness and participate with with what's going on, is, and, and maybe we'll talk about this, we'll intersperse this in the conversation, sort of lack of compassion, lack of understanding how difference is being used as something that can't be understood versus something that is unique. And, you know, I was just listening to uh, an episode uh, by the, uh, um, by Jack Cornfield. And then for people who don't know who that is, he's sort of more of a spiritualist. He's done a lot of meditation. He teaches about mindfulness. And he said in the podcast that came out this week, if you don't grow in love through the pandemic, somehow suffering will have won. And we're seeing a lot of suffering right now. And we've seen it before, but maybe we've turned a blind eye to it. And with us being stuck at home, with us being in quarantine, with us maybe reflecting on our own lives because we've been pulled out of things that we've been used to, like going to a job or being able to get together with friends, we've had a chance to see things We've also had a chance to see some things explode. And I think I want to pass the torch, so to speak, here over to Olivia to let's talk about 
from your perspective, and then I'm going to come back to Jeff about the historical roots of pride. And, you know, Jeff brought this up about how the narrative has been whitewashed and recovered and everything that's happening right now with all the protests, with the really horrible murder of George Floyd and the, the this now incredible, almost evolutionary moment in time where we're seeing the importance of Black Lives Matters and everything that falls into that sort of framework. Wow, that's a lot. I, I gave you a lot, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, let me start with Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that um, it's a struggle for me, maybe not for everybody else, but for me, certainly. Um, it's a struggle combining or trying to combine um, what has mattered broadly to, to Black people as a kind of diaspora, guys, as one whole group um, mm -hmm. based on the color of our skin and the movement um, or the, the movement around kind of sexual identity, sexual and gender identity. Um, I think in 2016, when Black Lives Matter um, protested the Pride Parade, um, it was seen as some kind of a marked statement um, around kind of Blackness. I'm not even 100% sure it was necessarily related to queerness in like the public's mind more broadly, um, but certainly uh, in relation uh, to Pride, I think it was one of the first times um, any of us had really seen the explicit conversation um, from Black people around uh, the Pride, in, inside the Pride movement. I'm I just sorry quickly. I just wanted to interject for people that might not know. Uh, in 2016, this is for Toronto Pride when Black Lives Matters. I think they were walking in the parade as well, or whether they just came in and then the they, they they blocked the street for about 45 minutes. And this is what we're talking about here. Right, exactly. And it's interesting that you say that, Darren, because they were the honored group, right? Right, um, right. And um, when you think about the role um, of, of the honored group, it's supposed to do just that, right? It's supposed to stop and make you think and make you kind of reflect on perhaps areas um, that the community has um, not dealt with so deeply. Um, and if you remember, the response to that was quite visceral, right? Um, and while you had, you know, your people that supported and your people that didn't, more broadly, I think the public simply felt kind of wrong place, wrong time, if you remember all of that backlash based on uh, yeah. the symbolism. Now, four years later, well, actually, two years later, you then had Bruce McCarthy, right? MacArthur, pardon me, right? Yeah, um, yes, serial murder in basically the Toronto Gay Village and, area. Yep, exactly. Who murdered mostly queer men of color, right? And you'd like to, and I thought then, you know, okay, now here's where we can start to have a much uh, more nuanced conversation about um, what it means to be a person of color in the context um, of the community. Again, perhaps what tends to happen is the kind of, you know, there, 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 there tends to be, like you say, like an a priori um, uh, weighing of uh, the issues and the issues generally tend to weigh not along the lines of race. But never mind, because there are a whole bunch of systemic issues, I suppose. And so you kind of take that for what it is. Now, two years later, 
Um, you get, and I, George Floyd is the culmination of, you know, the many, 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 many um, Black men who, found, who find themselves in that situation, who found themselves in that situation. Now for me, um, where, where I find a real tension, um, if you like, and I've been kind of trying to describe this to friends over the last few days, is that the Black, that Black people, Black communities across the West um, are homogeneous in one regard, and that is the outcomes of the way they're treated as a result of being Black. Mm -hmm. You can have a whole bunch of conversations about who those people are, whether or not, you know, they are homophobic, whether or not they, you know, get pol political issues around race, whether or not they're able to have the kind of, you know, quote, progressive, end of quote, conversations that, you know, let's say we are able to have, right? Um, as people who perhaps have the kind of time, energy, and resources to sort of be able to engage um, in a dialogue more broadly. My main, where I found there was a real kind of attention for me is that my identity is definitely, you know, as it's important. My queerness is important to me, but so too is the kind of plight of Black communities everywhere. And I don't want that to be a choice. I don't, I, I don't want it to be a choice. I want to, I have, you know, my own identity is very, very, very much wrapped up in um, Black communities more broadly that aren't necessarily engaged in the progressive conversations around um, what it means to attain liberty. Um, mm. The sort of George Floyds of the world and the families that surround the George Floyds of the world, they matter to me. And I find it really, really hard that those that 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 aspect of my community, that aspect of who I am, can't find space in the context of the pride conversation. And mm -hmm. when you try, it's somehow um, seen as an either or. Because when it comes to blackness, it's always an either or, especially in relation to having that conversation with white people. And so it, you know, what Black Lives Matter did for me. It wasn't about the kind of politicization of Pride Toronto and whether or not the police march or don't march or like that. That to me, to be honest with you, is a secondary conversation. The first conversation Black Lives Matter was having was the one about what happened to George Floyd. And right. I sadly, um, in relation to kind of how I'm able to express those sorts of thoughts, the world has created a situation where I have to talk about that in relation to pride, where the conversation is one that is very different um, and is very watered down with white notions of what it means for black people to attain liberty. Mm -hmm. And then the black community itself for whom daily struggle with the kind of issues that you see George Floyd and his family struggle with. Um, and I think that that conversation needs to be much more prominent, much more often. Um, you wrote something in Now magazine uh, in 2016 in your article, the, your words are, the legacy and complexity of the problems of marginalization we seek to solve started well before Black Lives Black Lives Matters and their protests during the parade in 2016. And it's just, 
I want to say it's unfortunate that the message is still this consistent. Yes, it's amazing. You know, no matter, it's like a machine and no matter what you put into it, no matter what you sort of attempt to kind of have that machine grapple with, the end result is always some kind of version that sort of somehow waters <clears throat> down what it means uh, to be a Black person engaging um, with uh, services anywhere um, because somehow it doesn't quite fit comfortably um, with the notion um, of what it means to fight for queer liberation. One of the interesting things I was mentioning to somebody about George Floyd's first memorial, um, where the family get up and they talk about what it means to be poor and Black in America, and they talk about putting their clothes in the oven and they talk about grilled cheese sandwiches and they talk about having not a lot of money and all. See, there isn't a black person, the majority, who won't relate to that more readily than they will relate to some notion of how the queer community has decided to construct what liberation looks like for us mostly made up of white people. Um, and, I, and I'm sure you would have noticed me very much struggle with that voice at Pride. I didn't mm -hmm. understand why it took up so much space with so little understanding um, of context and history. Um, and I still don't understand it, but mostly um, what the last kind of few weeks has, has, has shown me without a doubt is that there are, is that you know, the black people the, you know, those black men that have died at the hands of um, the brutality of kind of state service delivery, um, that they are the, like, they make up the majority of, um, you know, those receiving the, you know, the worst aspects of um, institutional racism. And that is where I will always tend to float towards, um, even though, you know, it erases what, you know, the, the, the fact that my sexuality matters to me hugely. Mm -hmm. You know, I live in a world that makes me make a choice. And, you know, mm -hmm. in the sense of um, where I choose to be, it will always be, um, you know, with the majority of the Black community, regardless of what they think about my sexuality. Um, because in the world, I am treated like the majority of the black community and, right. and 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 that's generally where i will tend to lay my head i want to uh, maybe i'll 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 make a little um uh, mention of a memory or an observation i had before going to jeff and saying hey jeff here's this really complicated puzzle piece that uh, olivia is giving you so you can transition into the history <laughs> between um, talking about the, the whitewashing and the recovery uh, and the historical roots of pride. But I was just, you, the way you explained that, Olivia, just reminded me of um, something I wrote, I think it might have even been from the same piece that I opened up with, where uh, the 519 Community Center in, in Toronto is, is, is its own thing. It's a support center funded by the United Way, and they always have a big... Um, drag show and uh, DJs over like the four day weekend around pride. That's their significant fundraiser. But I remember going, I think it was two years ago on a th the Thursday night and standing and watching and just watching who was coming in. I was looking for who's coming to these events in the sense of the diversity. Mm. And I, and you know, I'm a male, I'm white. Um, 
this is soon after my launch of my publication, Think Queerly, and I was really publishing a, a huge diversity of voices and, mm-hmm. and people of different backgrounds. So I was just looking. And I was like, where? It's a white person, white person, white person, white person, Asian, white person, white person, white person, Asian. It's like, where are the people of color? Where are the people who are black? Where are the people who are from East India? And I was perplexed. And I think what you said made me think that sometimes maybe to be queer and black, the priority isn't the queerness as much as one's validity as a human being who happens to be black. I couldn't agree with you more, Darren, (laughs) to be honest with you. Absolutely. Um, I, you remind me of, uh, I have two, uh, adolescent boys mm-hmm. and you remind me only last week um my older son he walked in and he remarked on how he rarely sees black people walking around downtown toronto um and yeah. rarely sees even in our no in our own neighborhood um black people taking up space in public life mm-hmm. and i thought about my own you know, I was born and raised in Toronto, and and that is downtown Toronto. You know, mm-hmm. that downtown core Toronto is my home, and it has always been the case that if you are a person of color, if you were <clears throat> like me, sort of born and raised downtown Toronto, you made your way out to you know the suburbs, semi suburbs, or the semi suburb suburbs, rural, semi rural, um, mm-hmm. and you you know <clears throat> that's what progress you know, means for you. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but what did it, what, and, and that's an absolute truism, um, end of, on the other hand, I, I marvel as I walk around my own, uh, neighborhood, both where I was born and raised and where I am now. And I, I realized he's absolutely right. You, you know, Rarely, if I go to Brampton, I see more black people walking the streets than I do in downtown Toronto. The sort of tacit gentrification that has also meant a kind of um, like a, a, like a racialized gentrification is so explicit that it, it it boggles my mind that somehow the very people who tell me they are fighting for my rights and they understand my liberty almost more than I do, can't even look up long enough to see that I, I will honestly be one of the only Black people that they will come into regular contact with in the context of professional life anyway, and mm. in the context of personal life, as you, as you rightly say, most queer businesses, queer services, for the most part, all of the mainstream ones will deal mostly with white people and the sense that that is normal and that is just the way things are and it goes unquestioned. Honestly, very little has changed in my lifetime in the city in that regard, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, and, I, I, and I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, it is hard when you, no matter what community you come from, um, especially if you're queer, right? It's 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 a it's been it's a struggle um, trying to find your 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 way 
um, in the context of, you know, a daily life that sort of others you. Um, yeah. But you can imagine if you overlay that with what it means to be racialized, um, then what you end up dealing with is a kind of, um, an erasure to the point of invisibility um, mm -hmm. in that, you know, like you rightly say, you know, you'll go to most of the, ev most events, even pride events are just, you know, the majority are, are, are white people. And, and it's got to change. Well, Jeff, you're back with us, right? Yep, I'm here. Okay, fantastic. Um, so I'm gonna. You've got a lot there <laughs> as a, as a place to come from, but I'm thinking if we look a little bit at some of the history of Pride, and then we'll make any further comments, and then move into um, the current situation more so. Right. So you know, one of the the things that I was um, thinking about. Um, this morning, as I was thinking about you know, what I specifically wanted to to emphasize in terms of um, talking about the the history, is um, first I, I think the fact that um, pride and the the history of queer activism um, in general is very indebted to the activism of people of color. And that social movements often come out of these really tumultuous points in um, history. So if we think about the American civil rights movement, um, that was largely coming out of uh, first and foremost, continuing Jim Crow segregation, but also um, all of these changes that were um, brought about um, because of World War II and, and the post-World War II um, era and right certainly we can make a comparison to this moment in terms of how um the the pandemic the murder of george floyd um and and others is really kind of shaking things up and providing an opportunity uh for people to change the paradigm uh, but you know early uh gay rights activists um, were completely indebted to the the civil rights movement um, because you know at that time before Stonewall, um, most people you know even queer people were not um, thinking about uh, people who were uh, oppressed because of their sexuality or their gender expression as um, even constituting a minority group that that could organize um or come together um for their rights so right of looking at the civil rights movement uh as a, a model for right early um gay rights struggles and, you know and, and i i want to emphasize as well that you know stonewall is not the um the beginning of of, of everything um that there's kind of decades of work um before that there's infrastructure that's laid down that then um when we have something like the the Stonewall uprising that gets so much attention that, you know, catches uh, fire both nationally and, and internationally that that groundwork was already um, laid for an event like that to be uh, an inspiration for more of um, a mass movement. Uh, and of course, if we think about um, Stonewall, um, 
which is not, you know, the sole origin um, point, but it's going to become, you know, this origin myth of our, our movement. And that's really helpful in some ways that we have a, a story that we can tell about ourselves, that we that we rally around, um, but it can also be uh, exclusionary. Uh, and, you know, for many years, I think decades, really, really until... Um, the most recent wave of transgender activism when we have uh, people like our uh, trans uh, women of color, like Raina Gossett, uh, Janet Mock, Laverne Cox, um, talking about um, Stonewall veterans like um, Sylvia Rivera, Marsha B. Johnson, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, uh, that we start to see that narrative shift and realize that these individuals who were gender non-conforming, who were uh, queer, who were uh, poor, who were people of color, uh, played a central role in that um, uprising. And that as they got pushed out of the movement that emerged after Stonewall, because they were considered to be less respectable, the narrative uh, progressively, you know, got more uh, whitewashed, right, and trying to uh, recuperate those um, origins, that that anti-racist origins of the movement, both in terms of drawing inspiration from the activism um, of people of color and seeing that as um, a model, and right, who was actually right uh, centrally involved in uh, these these struggles that. Um, really helped to catalyze everything and and propel us to where uh, we are um, in this moment. And of course, um, you know uh, our modern day pride, which originally was um, Christopher Street Liberation Day, um, was first held in June of nineteen. 19- um, 70, um, comes out of gay activists wanting to, uh, reconfigure an earlier event that was called the annual reminder day where gay groups would, uh, picket in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania to, uh, point out the fact that um, gay people at that time had second class citizenship, not first class citizenship, wanting to reconfigure um, you know that more passive picket into uh, something that was a, a demonstration, uh, a march. And part of that demonstration and that and that march, um, and uh, you know earlier, um, uprisings and demonstrations that had occurred uh, before Stonewall in 1969, um, that one of the central focuses was against um, police harassment of the gay and lesbian community. Uh, and of course, right, uh, then as now, queer people of color were uh, differentially targeted and policed by um, the criminal justice system. Um, you know, and so I think for uh, you know, several years now, uh, there have been a, a lot of people that have done great work in terms of talking about um, 
how uh, pride has become more of a corporate celebration, uh, the issue of um, rainbow capitalism, right? So um, do, you know, corporations who are sponsoring our companies actually have um, an investment to queer liberation or do they just want to slap a, a rainbow um, on, on a product to make money from um, the, the LGBT community as a base that can be marketed to uh, and um getting back to or thinking about the origins um, of pride, because really I think when uh, in terms of, you know, the corporate celebration, um, what happens there is um, that pride is then geared towards the most privileged and the most um, affluent members of the community, white um, gays and lesbians um, in, in particular, uh, and then everyone else, right, gets uh, or tends to get pushed to the side. Uh, and that strengthening of consumer capitalism um, actually hurts the most vulnerable members of the LGBTQ community in a, in a larger um, systemic way. So I, I really wonder if, you know, in terms of everything that, that's, that's happening now, is this another... Uh, moment where where there's actually going to be that that turning point, and we're going to rethink what what pride is and say no, we have to to do this um, in a way where we're actually focusing on issues and systemic change and not um, gearing what we're doing towards the most elite segment of the community, but also um, to the people that, um, you know, white gays and lesbians are uh, indebted to for the rights and the freedoms and the progress that, um, that, that we have today. I was putting together uh, or connecting some ideas in my head as, as you mentioned that, and I was thinking, um, uh, what was I reading? Uh, has the gay movement failed by Martin Duberman when he talks mm-hmm. about like the early, uh, when it was just called gay rights, primarily the gay rights movement, which was about liberation. And it was driven from that like sixties and seventies mentality. And then there were offshoots of people who wanted different things or the lesbians could no longer work with the gays or the gays didn't want to work with the lesbians. And then some of the lesbians wanted to then go work in the women's movement to work for feminism. And then people who were black maybe felt like they couldn't be connected in their groups. And it was like Olivia was saying, do I want to be part of uh, this group for equality for black people, or do I want to be part of this group for gay liberation? And then we moved towards the other group that said, let's just try and fit in. Let's get married. Let's get all of our rights and privileges and a white picket fence and 2.25 kids and a dog. And who does that benefit? It doesn't benefit those that are still not considered equal in society. And we know that those organizations were primarily driven by white men. Um, You and I, Jeff, had a discussion uh, the other day about... um, 
act up and that a lot of the individuals that were there were privileged in the sense that they were able to leave their jobs. They were white. They were, they had the money so that they could do the organizing, which on the one hand is really freaking important. But on the other hand, how does that direct dictate the outcome of the organizations, the mandate and the mission? Right. And I um, should, should add here that, so if we look, for example, at, um, the Gay Liberation Front, uh, which was uh, an an organization that um, came out of the Stonewall Uprising, and I believe that there was also a um, a chapter in uh, Toronto as well in the in the nineteen seventies. Um, but in terms of their original mission, by our um, contemporary standards, what they were doing was very intersectional, that they were not just um, concerned with um, liberation for queer people, but were making the recognition that their liberation um, was connected to the liberation of all um, oppressed peoples. And then there was people within the group who, you know, primarily uh, white gay men who felt like the group wasn't focusing right enough on their issues, uh, meaning, right, just focusing on gay issues, because that was the way that um, they were primarily um, oppressed. And so we have people, you know, breaking off of that group and forming other organizations that, that, you know, were just kind of single issue uh, groups. And, you know, the, one of the sticking points was the Gay Liberation Front wanted to work with the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And like, that was like it for, for some people, right? They didn't understand like, why would we be supporting this organization that is working for racial justice? We should just be focusing on uh, gay issues. And interestingly, all of the women in the group voted to support the Black Panther Party. uh, And it was um, some of the men that had problems because of course the women got it or the lesbians got it right that we can't just talk about one issue um because for them right they understood well we have to talk about the way that we're uh oppressed uh as lesbians and as women and how those things um intersect right so it was more easy for them to make the connection between right queer liberation is connected um also to um to to black liberation um and so we right, right, see the, the the movement starting to take a more uh, assimilationist track because often for the for the most privileged right within the minority group that's the quickest way to uh, achieve um, rights and resources that that more you know what we would today call an intersectional approach um, takes a lot more work. I was listening um, yesterday to uh, a podcast with um, Brene Brown and um, Ibram Kendi, who uh, is a, a historian, uh, an anti-racist educator. And uh, one of the things that that they said is, on the one hand, no one um, wants to admit that they're racist because there's shame associated with that. But on the other hand, people don't um, want to identify as being anti-racist because that takes a lot of work to actually commit to that perspective. Um, And we certainly see 
um, that tension playing out in the past and also at, at present. And I think, is this a moment in terms of everything that we see um, happening and this opportunity to think what, what um, pride is, where we as a community, especially the white members of the community, uh, have the opportunity to make a commitment to anti-racist work in terms of, or in connection to the things that that we might already uh, be doing in terms of LGBTQ liberation. Whew, Olivia. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've got something to say. I mean, you've been making notes, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> it is, you know, Jeff, you, all, all you do there is just point out um, how intersecting and yet um, and, and complex the whole uh, subject is. Yes. I will say this, but I think that um, I often marvel at uh, Black people who take up sexual and gender identities in the context of their race. I don't know that I think that there's anything more brave uh, than to be black, trans, and proud. I will, I'm going to take a few steps back for a second um, and talk about um, Marsha, Marsha P. Johnson, um, because I, I often grapple with the fact that Marsha P. Johnson was a complicated um, person, just like in terms of uh, the context, the historical context in which uh, she lived. So you can imagine um, America has been through slavery. It has then moved on to um, sharecropping, um, which was coupled with, um, you know, segregation. That existed um, uh, for a long, long time. Uh, and what happens is a lot of Black people who started in the South, right? So you can imagine they all come over as slaves. They all come to the South. They all work on plantations. Some go to the North, but most are in the South of the United States, where Marsha P. Johnson would have, where Marsha P. Johnson's family would have hailed from, and then moved, decided that the South was too difficult. They'd been through a civil war to keep slavery going. They, you know, we all, you know, even anecdotally, we all know the South is a hard place for Black people. So over time, there was this massive migration to the North, to places like New York and Chicago and Minnesota. And, and Black people decide, you know what, we're going to try our hand. Maybe it's freer there in places that are more urban, where Black people, and that's where you start to sort of see all of the kind of you know, for just like on a, on a basic level, a lot of the kind of cultural um, innovations that uh, Black people have wrought, they brought from the South as they migrated to the North. And so you can imagine Stonewall is about to happen or is happening. Marsha P. Johnson has just come out of, her family would have come out of slavery, sharecropping, segregation, moving to the North, where there existed a different kind of racial problem, no less horrible 
um, but just maybe more nuanced and different in the context of kind of urban, urban America. So there's that. And then parallel to that is what the meaning of policing in America. So much of what we see about what happens in the States to Black people has its roots in how Black people in the South were, were defined as property, right? So everything from policing to just the system of public service in relation to Black people is very much born out of Black people arriving onto the shores of America as property and being legally defined as such. So you can imagine. So then when your police service sets up, they set up to protect property. And in this case, property is people, right? So as all of these Black people move to the North, and Black people, they're queer, they're disabled, they're all the kinds of Black people you see today. Very much what it means to be Black, to have come to America as a slave, for your family to have then made its way through the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, to have moved North, to have sought a better life, and you come across a police service that is perhaps even more draconian. And I, you know, one would argue that that's arguable, but it's an argument I'm happy to sort of engage with anybody on. It's almost more draconian than what's happening in the South. And so if inside the LGBTQ2 plus community, there is no recognition of who Marsha P. Johnson actually was in relation to her identity before she then throws that first brick, which is as much about queerness as it is about Blackness, as it is about, I mean, that first brick in the queer community was being thrown all over the states in relation to the Black community. So it's incredibly important, I think, if we are to start to embrace as a queer community what it means to engage with communities of color, every community of color has an equally complex story in relation to what it means to be on soil that is not their own. And until the LGBTQ community, until the pride movement starts to grapple with the nuance of not just Black people, but every community of color and every story that they bring to the table it is not going to be a movement as, and it isn't right now. It never has been. And into the future, it's not going to be a movement that, that I can ever see myself reflected in until it starts to talk about stories from my perspective. And not only from my perspective, but for the perspective of my family, of my friends, of all of those people that perhaps aren't as familiar with what it means to be a part of the pride movement but are affected by what it means to be a a person of color. And those two things in 2020 have yet to align in a way that makes any sense or is relevant to anybody that isn't white. 
it's it's challenging for me to know how to follow up as the host <laughs> in the sense of um you know I was really letting thoughts come to mind and and just sort of reflections and personal observations listening to what you say and and you know as much as as much as just blah, 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 as much as it's so nice to just go out to pride and see all the queer people out and relax there has been in the last couple of years for me this sense of but so what in because of what you're saying like okay do i get to have rights but other people don't get to have rights and i i can't fight everyone's battle and and should we be layering these things should we be putting more attention onto one thing than another and that that last point is something i'm struggling with more in the sense of what i'm observing so if there were a couple of pride organizations that said they were going to do something more like a black lives matters uh uh, parade, not parade, uh, a protest or march instead of um, a physical pride parade. And I'm like, okay, but there's always this sense of, are people just following the trend? Are people just jumping on the bandwagon without the commitment to the longer term? And I don't, I think it might've been you, Olivia, that was saying earlier about um, no, oh, maybe Jeff, you were saying the on the Brene Brown podcast, people not wanting to say they're anti-racist, but this is what we all have to do. We all have to be vulnerable. We all have to maybe take a slap, so to speak, in the metaphorical sense, when we don't realize um, that we're saying or acting or being in a particular way that is offensive or is privileged and to just take a deep breath and go, help me understand. Oh, I know it's um, it's uh, incredible uh, how I often would be engaged in a conversation with <clears throat> some young person who, while completely being racist, was telling me that somehow my views were less accurate as a black person or, you know, less on the side of right than their own as a white person and happy to take up space talking to me about what it, what about, you know, what my true liberation actually means Hmm. and very rarely able to stop long enough to imagine that there are other black people who feel other things other than the black people that they know. Hmm. And it is, you know, I, and it's funny because if I'm to take a number of steps back, what I found and what I find is that when you seek to challenge that, um, somehow in that challenge in and of itself, there is some kind of offense at the fact that as a Black person talking about Black issues, I might be talking about a Black issue in a way that as a white person, you might not understand, even though you don't know enough Black people to have a sense of what the breadth of the opinion of all black people may or may not be. Um, it's the, it's the, I think the curse of what it means to be a progressive white person in the sense that it is virtually impossible in my experience that a person steps back 
and says, you know what, I'm going to go away and understand more before I come back to you and have a conversation about it. Or I might even question that I don't know as many Black people as, let's just say, me, a Black person might know or might experience such that I'm going to hold fire on what I think about this. Mm-hmm. Worse still is the part where I am a student of Black history. I'm a student of Blackness. I've spent my entire life in one way or another understanding what it means to be Black in the world that I inhabit today. <clears throat> and I cannot tell you, and, at, and, and particularly at Pride, I must say, or at, particularly inside the sort of movements for queer and gender liberation, if you like, is the fact that somehow because of one's sexual or gender identity, it gives you some kind of right to sort of talk to another Black person about what it means, about what rightness or wrongness means. It, I, I, like, I, mu- I must say, I, I struggle with any conversation where, as a Black person talking about my Black experience, my experience doesn't take precedence, as with any other community that, that is bound by a set of experience or identity or whatever. So I would never imagine that I could talk to somebody disabled about what it means to, to inhabit the rights of being disabled or somebody for, you know, whether a man and talk to the ma- a man about what it means to be a man, vice versa. I wouldn't expect that of me in terms of what it means to be a black woman, anything, you know, my, the experience of the person having that conversation with you, especially if that is a lived experience must always take precedent. And I've always, always struggled with this notion that somehow, you know, what we must do is find allies that feel the same way we do and move forward and bring everybody else along in the kind of, in the sweeping up of the right kind of rights. Mm-hmm. That makes absolutely no sense for me. And I think it's the way in which many, many, many white people justify why they don't know very many black people apart from those people that they call friends who feel exactly the same way they do. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I, myself, I'm the second generation of, an, of, of a newcomer family. I absolutely to, you know, I have one foot in what it means to be Canadian and one foot in what it means to be Ghanaian. And the one foot that I have in what it means to be Ghanaian, of course, I'm dealing with family members and, you know, certainly my own personal networks that have a range of views about a range of things, including about me. With that said, what will always take precedence for me is their Blackness. And I, and I, I, I hope for the day where as a Black person, I can speak to some woke white person and have them say nothing as I tell them what it means to be a part of a broader Black community, all of us with different views. You know, it's the sense that, you know, there's only one kind of acceptable Black person we will take, and that person has to look like this and feel like this and sound like this. The amazing thing about George Floyd is, so I you know, I'm an African, most of the black men in my family look like him and they do not occupy space in my public life as a professional. 
And so until there is an understanding of the systemic bias in even the conversation about sexual and gender liberation, until there's a significant conversation about the fact that when we are all gathered in a room together, there is no multiplicity of views of communities of color such that the pride movement or the queer community in general should be taking up any space at all Mm -hmm. other than that of hearing, listening, absorbing. And I, you know, no matter who the person is who tells me that they're on my side, they never seem to be on my side enough Hmm. to elevate my own sense of my own experience and that of the community around me. They will always have some kind of decision-making power over me, even though we're talking about an experience that's particular to me. I think that's going to be one of a few mic drops in this conversation. <laughs> wow, Jeffrey, can can you follow up on that? <laughs> it, it 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 just strikes me in terms of Olivia, you know, listening to the the way that you so beautifully laid out um, when you were talking about right, Marsha P. Johnson, the historical context she was coming out of, right, and how that um, influences or explains her her participation in Stonewall and also this issue of um, the importance of listening. Um, that there, I think one of the challenges is that there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach because different cities, different countries, different, you know, regions of countries um, have their own particular history of racism or how racism has interacted with um, the LGBTQ community. uh, So that there's going to need to be a lot of listening on a very local level because anything meaningful in terms of systemic change is going to have to, you know, address what that, that very uh, looks like, you know, particularly within um, specific communities that we can't just say like, oh, you know, oh, let's look at, um, you know, what, what New York City is doing in terms of um, how they might be rethinking pride in the current moment and, and going forward and just apply that, you know, to our, um, to our context. Um, you know, and I, I have to say also as the, you know, the, the ignorant American, uh, I don't know that much about, um, Canadian history because it's, it's not, um, taught in American schools. I, I think the assumption that a lot of Americans make is, um, you know, oh, Canada is just a Northern extension 
um, of the U.S. So we we really don't need to learn about um, Canadian history because Canada is so culturally similar um, to us. When I when I think that you know that is um, absolutely not the case. And in, in terms of uh, anti-racist education in particular, uh, it would probably benefit a lot of Americans to think about the uh, issues of ethnicity and race in in, in Canada in uh, comparison to um, to the United States, so um, yeah, my point is, you know, I I um, completely agree. It's going to take a lot of um, listening, and it's going to take a lot of listening within our own communities. Yeah, it's you know, white privilege is a is a is, is a difficult thing to start off, you know, and it is inside the fabric of our society such that. People, you know, there's this. There's been this interesting notion. Um, here's this whole George Floyd uh, situation, um, or the situation of the policing of uh, black black people. Um, that has been about leveraging whiteness. You know, applying your lending your privilege, like just the conversations around leverage and privilege and what it means to hand over or to be a part of. And you will see so many of the protests and demonstrations you see mostly, not to say that, you know, Black people don't make up a significant part, especially in the States, but you will see these self-organized protests by, you know, hordes of white people um, um, clearly and visibly lending their support to what it means to savor Black life. And I, one of the reasons I've been really moved by it is because I think it's one of the first times I've ever seen sort of groups and groups of white people who aren't necessarily interested in being in relation to a Black person in order to justify being in a space fighting for Black issues. Mm-hmm. And I've been so moved by it because I think it's the first time where I really feel like, okay, it hasn't taken some, you know, a group of Black people sitting around gathering white voices together to go march down the street. It has been about white people saying, all right, you know what? What can we do inside our own whiteness to show mm-hmm. that? this is not acceptable or that this is, this has to change. That has been, I think, the most powerful thing for me because for the first time I am not, and you know, other black people are kind of being wheeled out as the validation for why everybody is gathering. It has been completely about self-defining how as white people, you clearly, and I don't even like calling it allyship because it is really about individuals making the actual choice to say, this is what I am going to do in order to demonstrate that this needs to change. I have been incredibly moved by that. And it has been, you know, really enlightening for me to finally, to to kind of see and and actually incredibly heartening to see protests without a lot of black people in it 
where it is about the majority community having a conversation with itself about how it has created a system that is leading to such deep and meaningful inequality. And so I think that that's incredibly important and necessary. On the other hand, unless there is a much clearer and deeper understanding, and this is where the intersectional conversation seems so hard for everybody to have, not just the queer community, but unless, and using Marsha P. Johnson as, as an example, unless you are able to fully understand and embrace and get to grips with how Marsha P. gets to Stonewall and throws the brick and the myriad of different emotions that is going through this woman's mind, her family, her whole life completely inculcated in this relationship with policing and the end result of the narrative is something about how Marsha P. Johnson throws a brick and starts the, the you know, stone, uh, throws a brick at Stonewall and, and ignites the LGBTQ plus movement. True that. But Marsha P. Johnson was Black and everything involved in being Black at that time also matters and it doesn't make it into the story in any way as much as it should. And I think, you know, with, with that, then um, <clears throat> we also don't talk enough about how the movement that she was foundational in helping to spark uh, failed her in, in many ways. And, you know, I um, really believe that, you know, so the official, you know, police um, report says that um, she committed suicide, but I really believe that she was murdered and the um, New York Police Department just doesn't care to put in the effort in the early 1990s to properly uh, investigate the the murder of a black transgender woman. Well, I mean, you know, welcome to the story. Right. <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> different baby. And to be truthful with you, think about, um, you know, New York's recent celebrations and the reception trans women of color received whenever they got on stage to make a point about what the community is really fighting for. Every time they got booed, Every mm. time they got run off, they say, at Stonewall. So well, that was the same thing that happened with um, Silvio Rivera in one of yes, the... Literally, it was literally the same thing in the yeah. same place, only everybody around her was a part of the community. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it's the... I just, you know, in so many ways, from Colin Kaepernick, Marsha P. Johnson... It's the sense of the way Black people take such significant risks, are so brave, are so strong, end up suffering being pioneers, being the first. You know, that if that isn't sad enough, that suffering is then, is then compounded with this kind of erasure of the narrative that created the moment in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the constant refrain is, 
Pride was started by a woman of color. Pride, a trans woman of color. Pride belongs to trans women of color. I don't, you know, in the sense that, for sure, there might, you know, that might have been the spark. For sure, there's a bigger conversation to be had about the fact that Marsha P. Johnson was a Black person who had probably, who had definitely been brutalized by the sort of institutional system her entire life, but never mind her entire life as a trans woman. And that doesn't take center stage in the narrative. Colin Kaepernick. Let's talk about how the many years went by where this man was vilified for kneeling to protest how the police treat Black men only to have Black police chiefs and Black officers up and down the Western world kneeling. And the sense of irony is somehow dissipated because look at how these cops are taking a knee because they have finally taken on board what Colin Kaepernick is saying, which I don't disagree with. It's powerful and moving for me for sure. But I'm, I'm, I'm always sad at the Black trailblazers who end up suffering the worst aspects of the trailblazing they start. Well, and, and you know, connected to that is just the ridiculousness of the NFL, I think, that then said, oh, we were wrong a little too late. And it just reminds me of, um, I, I posted in one of my previous podcasts, something Brene Brown had written. It's like, the system is not broken. It was designed to work this way. And I think, you know, COVID-19, this disruption, everything else that is happening, the the amount of tension and stress and depression and frustration and questions and, and uh, anxiety that COVID-19 has brought may just be the trigger that has, you know, been the, the powder keg of this generation, of this century, that has just put that little extra kindle under the dry wood that was just ready to turn into, you know, like a barn fire. I, and we're seeing all the cracks. We're seeing the transparency. We're seeing people that, you know, there was an article, um, I'm going to put it in the show notes. I, I made some notes here in, in HuffPost. Uh, somebody asked, or it was just like a, pre- a pretend question that you're hearing around social media. Oh, I don't want to post about racism on social media because I'm scared of the backlash. And you realize this is a person, this is the mindset that's trapped in society. Oh, what if my parents, what if my friends don't like what I'm saying? What if somebody then stops following me? And I've been watching this on social media, people that are actually changing their entire news feed and being a part of the conversation and they're doing screenshots of, oh, I had 800 people following me. These are people with like big followings and they're like, fuck off. Bye. Didn't want you on here in the first place. If you're just going to follow me because you don't want to hear me talking about something related to black lives matters. So the, 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 the discussion in this article on HuffPost was, uh, and quoting, refusing to use your voice and platform in this way to talk about anti-racism 
is putting your comfort above all else, even above humanity. It is a privilege to not have to take a risk of alienating yourself from others. It's saying that the drama or backlash you don't want to face from potential racists is more important than speaking out against innocent people being oppressed. And I was just thinking about that from what you were saying, Olivia, of of more white people coming to these marches not because it in some way benefits them personally, because there's, to use the term, they woke finally, maybe, hopefully, for the longer term. That's the thing I'm always most concerned with, the longer term. Are they seeing that they need to be part of this movement, not as allies, but following the lead of the people who need the help, and then shut the fuck up and listen to what the other people who are the most oppressed are asking for? It's, uh, you know, Darren, there's so much, there are so many parallels with past pandemics, um, um, you know, 1918, uh, overthrew feudalism in Europe, <laughs> um, you know, uh, what, what national or what international health crises tends to do is it tends to be an equalizer. Um, you want to, everyone wants to hope. Uh, that that would be the case in this case. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I, uh, I hold fire on, uh, on that kind of hope. And the reason I do uh, is because, you know, when I think about, um, you know, George Floyd is the, is the end result of so, so, so many men like him um, for whom, and you see the stories, like every now and then, two months ago, this happened. Six months ago, this happened. Armand Aubrey happened three months before anything actually took place, right? Um, and why? Because it was on video. So, or because it was it, it was filmed. Point being that, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. Honestly, it feels like when you like you had to watch a man be murdered in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm other officers standing around him with, and you have to remember the person that recorded this incident is a young black girl who recorded somebody losing their life in front of her very eyes and continue to record it knowing at, and she's, she's young, she's like 16, knowing that what was happening before her is 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 an implication of her own skin color, right? Yeah. So yeah. the perversity of having a child film the law murdering a man and all of this in 2020 to finally shed light, because you have to remember before George Floyd, we knew about Eric Garner. We knew about Philando Castillo. We saw those on tape. We, uh, we saw them. We, we saw all of it. And yet, why does this really resonate? Let me take it a step back to Ahmed Arbery, who I, you know, the story of this person is an even greater perversity where he's jogging in a neighborhood gets chased down by a truck, gets hit by that truck, continues to run 
There are three men, two of them armed. Finally, when they corner him, he decides as an unarmed man, he has got to fight two people with guns who have chased him in a truck and who have hit him with that truck, but he can't get away. And finally, when they actually shoot him for absolutely nothing other than trying to run and then deciding he was going, he had to stand up or he's going to lose his life anyway. So he, you know, he knew at the time he had nothing on him. When he gets filmed, the person, the third person filming decides only to film the point at which he stops and decides that he's got to fight for his life. And then suggests that that video is the example of Ahmed Arbery's aggression and then shoots him. You know, the we live in a world where there are, you know, the, the those that are on the side of Black people, those, those white people that are on the side of Black people, are themselves engaged in a kind of privilege that doesn't have them understand that what happened to Ahmed Arbery is a part of the daily life of Black people. Mm-hmm. Some version of what I just described to you is a part of our life. Mm-hmm. And so to simply say to somebody like me, you know, that story, well, you know, how much are they engaged in the LGBTQ conversation before we have a story with that, with that man's family, with that man's legacy? It's, you know, it makes the pride movement not a movement for me, even though I'm a member of that community. Because until the movement starts to grapple with the story I just told you and every way in which those traumas affect Black people in a way that doesn't have the majority of us be able to engage in the kind of conversation I'm engaging with in with you now, mm-hmm. makes the pride movement not a movement for people of color. Mm-hmm. You can't make judgments about how Black people choose to embody the experience of the story I just described to you. You can't take up space if that doesn't happen to you and then somehow suggest that you know what needs to happen next or you know whether or not a Black person is somehow sincere or not sincere, on your side or not on your side, has like enough of a nuanced understanding of what the issues around equality and oppression is. You can't, you can't do that. You can't create barriers like that to Black people like Ahmed Arbery, and George Floyd, who will never engage with and with the, the, the pride movement or the queer movement and somehow imagine that that story and those stories, if they, if, they don't, if they don't start to take up more space in the context of the queer conversation, then the queer conversation simply isn't for me. In my head, I'm thinking, you know, what next on a couple of levels? I'm I'm paying attention to the show <laughs> as to what, and you know we we had an outline, and you get into a point of a conversation, and you realize this is the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, we could talk about how to reconfigure pride, but what you've just said is the bigger issue. Pride, as a corporation, as as it sort of plays out in. in most places right now doesn't address these issues never really has not well enough 
Um, the challenge with pride in general is there's so much. And when it tries to become a single focused festival with maybe a theme, there's always going to be people included. And that's going to be the nature of any sort of organization, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, what, what are the next steps? Like what are you not seeing right now in Toronto, in, in elsewhere, um, you know, beyond what you've talked about here, I mean, I guess just for, for, for this year, what, what would be maybe the most important thing that you think could happen that might draw more attention to this? Or is it that individuals have to rise up one person at a time and start, you know, waking up and listening and understanding? Oh, wow. You know, I would say this, Darren, I feel like, um, uh, in fact, I'm, I was having an interesting conversation um, on Facebook with someone uh, for whom I had to write, I'm asked to make a choice. I'm asked to make a choice between what it means to be um, a part of a Black community who understands all of that that I just described to you, or a part of a queer community that relates to my sexual gender identity. Right. And I, um, and I decided that it is, and it took me a while to get there, um, for sure. I fought the good fight, but I decided that it wasn't for me to decide how a predominantly white-led queer movement decides how it's going to see me, how it's going to represent me. I am a part of a Black community who mm. knows exactly what my experience is. No, they don't really, may not really engage with aspects of my sexuality. And that is its own kind of erasure. And I'll battle that inside my own community. But as you can see, the life or death situation as it applies to me and as it applies to my children is about the color of my skin and the way in which institutional, the way in which institutions respond to the color of my skin and the color of the skin of my children. And mm -hmm. in that sense, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm somewhat saddened to say, but not all that surprised to say in, you know, I know exactly where this conversation is in relation to my race. And so I choose to be a part of that conversation in relation to my race. And after my experience of what it means to be a part of the LGBTQ2 plus movement, I leave it for the movement to decide how it is going to engage with that aspect of me that's about my race. That means that it understood that within the LGBTQ movement, it understands exactly what my experience is in relation to my race. It can simply just do nothing about it. Um, it is dominated by white people for whom can take a lot of very kind of, you know, um, heartfelt, who can take a lot of heartfelt positions. Um, but really, um, if the use of um, white privilege is that of banning the police from a parade because that's where, you know, white privilege can do its most good. And then I leave it for 
the LGBTQ community to decide that that's what it needs to do. And I go to, to my Black community and decide, okay, how is it we take this issue forward as a community? And I have to tell you, everywhere you look, you see what Black responses are to the issue of police brutality. And, you know, that's where my heart lay. That's where I don't have to lay out a, a blueprint for what change looks like, because we are all talking the same language in that community. And in the queer community, I, I leave it and its leaders to decide what justice looks like uh, for Black people, knowing full well that it doesn't really matter to me either way, because it is with the large, larger movement of simply Black people who have a clear road ahead and that clear road ahead, be it defunding, be it relooking at legislation, be it complete institutional overhaul, all of those things, all of those answers are coming from the black people who are most affected by these issues and the sort of you know, the queer community for whom are affected by different issues can come up with their own answers to their own issues. Jeff, I want to give you an opportunity to offer some thoughts here. Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're we're. Uh, I suspected that this was going to be a very deep and sort of um, evolving conversation that would just go wherever it would go. But the the broader question was. Um, you know, I guess, what do we do? Um, and, and what are the best next steps forward? You know, listening, Olivia, to what you had to say, um, maybe to preface this for you, Jeff, my thought was maybe it's a good thing pride is virtual right now because it feels really hard to want to celebrate. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and maybe, you know, looking at that uh, component of celebration and um, what what does that that mean or who does it exclude? And should we have some sort of um, refocusing where like, yes, we can have the, the celebratory aspect, but could we also use um, this time or um, these events or this this month to to do some um, real work. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously I'm coming from, um, uh, the, the perspective of, you know, someone who has participated and uh, observed as a participant, but, um, has not, you know, um, uh, played an organizational role in terms of, um, the, the main pride events in, in my city, but, um, you know, I think um, looking at leadership, like who is on the, the board of an organization or um, a planning committee, right? Is it all, all white people? And if so are they extending um, you know, uh, messages about uh, diversity and equity? Um, it, are those just empty words or are, are they practicing um, what, what they preach, um, corporate sponsorship. And, and I think that 
that you know this is um this is tricky because so uh, on on the one hand right looking at um corporations that that want to to sponsor and do they have you know policies or or practices that are um actually supporting racism uh or um you know might they even be um engaged in um anti-racism work and but not just so um if sponsorship is taken from um corporations right then how is that um being used could it um be used in a way that invests in the entirety of the community that provides um education that's actually doing um real work right does that always you know have to be something like uh <laughs> investing in a in a very famous expensive you know drag queen which um uh, that's always kind of uh for for the past you know x number of years that's typically kind of been the the highlight of of pride in buffalo that there's the march and then there's a, a festival by the waterfront right that features these different um you know celebrity uh uh performers um so I, I think it's a a time when we should really be um asking these these questions and thinking about you know uh in terms of what what we do the 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 money that that we have are we actually um investing in in the community as a whole or uh is this event really um to um the uh, or is the audience of the event really a, a particular segment of the community uh, at the the exclusion of of others? There's um, I want to try and bring this towards a close because we're going long and respect people's times here. Um, the pride has become this like multi conglomerate, and that that is very much a part of the problem right um and where does the money come from where does the privilege of that money come from who then gets onto the board what are the wheelings and dealings that go on uh you know a couple of years ago at pride toronto we had an executive director that um brought on their partner for a contract without tenure so there was nepotism i mean this happens everywhere but there was a discussion i had with some people a couple of years ago you know, when we see like the, the trans mark and then we see the dyke march and then we see the general pride march and then there's the youngins that are just about the party and like, what history? Fuck, who cares? And then there are the older people that are like, oh, I miss the old days when this was actually a riot. And it gets to the point where you think maybe pride just needs to be a festival in general, but otherwise it needs to be broken apart and it needs to, you know, not to create more difference. <clears throat> but perhaps to elevate the uniqueness. I, just, I don't see another way going forward, like a, a pride organization getting bigger. It, I think the problems are only just going to get larger, the bigger that the organization gets. I, I have to say it's, um, I think what's happening this year is really interesting because you do feel the sense of, you know, the pandemic and all of these other issues that, you know, it isn't the time to party, 
which is interesting, right? I think that mm. that is a gift. Um, I think that the general mood around prides and what the focus should or shouldn't be um, uh, uh, is a shift that that has been heartening. Mm. That coupled with um, the kind of sponsorship, the corporatization conversation, because the, there's a, there's more broadly a shift there too, right? Towards, you know, right now you have a market um, of young people who want to see their corporations supporting what happens in their own communities. Mm-hmm. They're seeing that shift towards, um, you know, corporates who are, you know, and, and and it was happening at Pride too. You know, there was a start when it was just about brand, 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 brand. Actually, by the end, it was very much, okay, what can we do to support you longer term? What are the things going on on the ground that we need to, uh, you know, have a, a closer look at? And it's as much altruistic, for sure, about not being quite so kind of materialist and facile. But on the other hand, there is also, um, uh, you know, a, a deepening sense that if you want to create brand loyalty, you do that by investing in the communities and the places where people live. And you do that by, you know, showing that as a brand that you support more than just you know the buying of the product but you're you're actually supporting the community to grow and you're or to strengthen anyway um Mm. so i think that there's definitely a conversation moving forward and you can see it now even even with the virtual prides you know you're not seeing even on social you're not seeing all this like brand brand sponsor sponsor you know Brands are having to pull back. They're having to think about what it means uh, to create deeper and more meaningful engagement. There are, you know, real, like if you look at some of our biggest brands today, be it Nike, um, you know, the Labatt, whomever, you see that they are aligning themselves with movements that are making quite radical statements. You wouldn't have even gotten that two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, you are getting brands who are putting up hashtag Black Lives Matter, who looks Starbucks, you know, decided it wasn't, you know, you weren't allowed to wear a Black Lives Matter team. And now you are allowed to wear all of those conversations by consumers are now hitting these corporations in relation to like, you know what, I'm not going to be loyal to you if you're not going to be loyal to me and what matters to me. And I think that, I think watch this space for that conversation it definitely, you know, I think it will grow. I think there will be a sense of what it means to be kind of, you know, just like throwing money at vinyl um, and, you know, putting up, you know, eyes on brand, eyes on brand type stuff. And much more about longer term engagement where impact is felt over the longer term. And certainly for Pride Toronto, you see for those brands that have stuck with Pride 10, 15, 20 years through thick and thin like the TVs, like the Labatt, like the OLGs, like all of those kinds of um, agencies who no matter what are just like, you know what, you, you know, if you matter to people, you matter to us. So we're just going to, you know, we're going to continue to support you. You see that their brand does better if they engage over the longer term. And if they do so without necessarily a view to what the agency is doing to tarnish but instead, whether or not it's meaningful to people or not, and I, you know, and I, I do think that that's a shift that's going to grow and grow. Um, you know, at the moment, it's just, it's, you know, it is not appropriate to kind of, you know, 
be sponsoring a bunch of stuff. Um, but certainly what is appropriate is to start to think about how it is you, you know, you lift up and you strengthen communities. And I, I do think that, you know, if there's any positive thing to come from, from all of these kind of difficult conversations is I think that it's going to lead to a completely different kind of marketing strategy into the future, um, about what it means to, um, you know, uh, meaningfully engage, um, with issues that matter to people. Yeah. Last year, um, uh, the Reclaim Pride Coalition, uh, that was kind of like a, I guess a bit of a protest in a way for Stonewall 50 in New York. Um, they had their own march and they had a number of statements and they spoke to that corporatization. And one of their statements was, we march against the exploitation of our communities for profit and against corporate and state pinkwashing as displayed in pride celebrations worldwide, including the NYC Pride Parade. And you know, it's one of the things I've seen in the fact that I do some uh, media sales for uh, a company here in Toronto or LGBTQ media sales. And it's always a discussion that I share with potential um, uh, businesses that are going to buy advertising is what are you doing all year round? Are you involved in the community? Um, I saw an alcohol company, for example, suddenly they had a, a rainbow flag on one of their beers. I'll be very careful to make sure I don't mention anything about who that is. And I had been in contact with them um, six months ago and wasn't going anywhere. And I, I very tongue in cheek, but really directly to the point where I was thinking, I have nothing to lose here because the way I wrote the email, they could have come back and said, fuck you don't ever write us again because I basically said you're pink washing yeah. should be putting money into the community instead of just putting a rainbow flag on your beer. I didn't, that's, that's the direct way. <laughs> that was the intention. I put it in some nicer language, right? And it was trying to educate about why it's important to go beyond just that. It's like, if you want to put that beer out with that rainbow flag, you go right ahead. But there's that, really important. However, take some action, right? I mean, the uh, two podcasts ago, I did uh, Humanity's Tipping Point without a return to compassion, we're finished. And what I was talking about is, you know, why we need to be conscientious of our conscious awareness, why we need to notice, witness, observe, have compassion, understand that it's going to be uncomfortable. I, I, I uh, wrote to the both of you or said to the both of you in, in a, something, a text, uh, uh, this challenges of, of empathy avoidance where people want to turn the television off. People want to turn the news off because with everything COVID, it's so much. But with the George, George Floyd murder, with all of the protests, people are like, it's too much. I can't feel this. Now more than ever, we need to feel this. We need to feel exhausted from practicing our empathy muscle. We need to feel really tired and worn out going to bed, feeling like I've felt so much today, especially those that aren't d directly impacted by that kind of suffering. And to wake up the next day and not to like run down the road of despair, you know, the world is going to end, the world is so terrible, what am I going to do? It just takes one person. And if you don't know what to do, you say, what organization can I become a part of? Who can I donate money to so that this organization that is organized can do something that I feel might 
be that change that I would like to be a part of in the world. And so this leads me to what would be my last question for the the, the two of you. I've kind of answered uh, that question for myself. And if there's something you want to say before you answer the question, please feel free. But kind of the concluding thought is, is what happens for you when you imagine living in a world free of prejudice, prejudice, free of racism, free of inequality? Maybe I'll start with Jeff and then, and, and Olivia, have you wrap it up for us? I think I wanted to say, you know, first on the the note of um, empathy, um, one of the really um, heartening things is I think, you know, for watching any sort of um, news, news coverage of the, the protests that are happening worldwide, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of the, the people that are getting involved are young people that, you know, may be energized in this way for the first time or are um, protesting for, for the first time. Um, to the importance of um, talking about and, and balancing that sense of um, empathy with the recognition that working for uh, progressive change is a marathon and not a sprint and kind of figuring out um, what does this look like as um, a daily practice and uh, and not as um, a one-time event? Yeah. Um, you know, it's so difficult to, uh, to answer your question, I think, because, you know, um, the part, the, the um, goal of, any movement should be to, you know, put itself out of business, essentially, right? There's, there's no longer right, a need for uh, the movement because the, the change that right, people want to, uh, to affect ha- has been, um, has been af- affected. So when you're right, in the, the middle <laughs> of that, I think it's often difficult to, um, emphasize or uh to to think about what what the endpoint um looks like in terms of a, a lot of specifics but um i guess what what i uh will say and and what i often think about is uh and and um talk about and emphasize with my students is that um our goal in thinking about these issues and doing this work um shouldn't be the eradication of difference or, you know, adopting this kind of colorblind um, perspective, if we're going to bring it back to the, to the issue of um, racism, but arriving at a point where we um, acknowledge difference and um, see difference, but um, that difference is um, mere difference. It doesn't uh, influence the way that we see or treat people both on an individual level and also on a systemic level, that we're, we're not using difference to create um, a hierarchy and that um, difference is actually seen as um, a strength and that we have a society uh, that is structured around um, allowing people to utilize their differences to create the most livable reality for everyone. 
That's lovely, Olivia. Wow. Um, I have to say, I, I can't answer that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I have no idea. My entire life is predicated on the notion of negotiating barriers. I don't know what life looks like without them. I don't know how to even conceive of a life. Um, I, you know, being African, I, um, I say that I'm, I'm a Canadian-born African person. Um, when I go to Ghana, I often imagine that that's where I will, I will experience all of this uh, freedom because everybody's, you know, it's a majority black country, um, etc. Um, but I am Canadian too. And so I, you know, my, the way in which I conceive of my identity, myself and my life isn't entirely about um, what it means uh, to be African. And so I don't go there and experience and feel all this freedom. It's certainly nice to walk around a place where everybody, where, you know, the majority of people are black like you and most days that's everybody. Um, but on the other hand, um, I don't experience that in the place I was uh, born. And so it leads to a kind of, it's a double-edged sword for me. If you are uh, black and you know, born abroad and you go to wherever it is you know, um, your blackness comes from, you will find that uh, you know, you are treated as a foreigner, right? Because you aren't entirely defined by your skin color in those places. Hmm. Um, you are defined by a whole load of other cultural and contextual mores um, that goes beyond your skin color. And if you aren't born where your you know, family hails from, the trust me, it, it's, not, it's not clear perhaps to somebody white, but you are a foreigner in every sense uh, of the word. Um, and yet when I'm at home, i.e. Canada, um, obviously I am different in every sense of the word. And so it is really hard for me to, under, to, to, even, like, to even imagine what a life would be like where I didn't walk into a store and wasn't followed. Hmm. where I, you know, didn't walk down the street in my own neighborhood and didn't have somebody wonder what I was doing there, where I didn't feel or try to negotiate with the fact that I know others will be negotiating with my skin color and with who I am more broadly, you know? Um, it's the skin color is one thing, but it's also this other thing about, you know, you know, what, how I carry myself and all of those sorts of things and have to constantly process a million different micro interactions um, such that I have no idea um, what it would be or mean to uh, live uh, in a world where I wasn't negotiating that. It's, you know, it is my life. Wow, you, that just reminded me um, of a friend of mine uh, who's been posting a lot and she's also black, uh, three boys that are black and a daughter so four kids and she wrote this 
post that just made my heart go into my throat where every line would start, this is not new to me. Citing experiences like what you had, you know, being followed into the store, not being served first, not being, you know, and when you don't have that experience, I don't have that experience. Um, you can only listen. You can only read as you've shared, as my friend shared to coming back to the empathy, try and imagine what it would be like. But I'm, Glad I asked this question, even though it's it's disheartening on one level to hear the answer, but the answer, Olivia, you give is 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 honest, right? It's just this is what we're facing. Um I have a I have a, a picture that I'm holding that somebody shared, and it's a little girl, she's black, she's smiling, she's holding a sign. She must have been at one of the protests. And I think this is sort of the perfect way to to wrap it up underlined is we said and then an arrow black lives matters underlined never said only black lives matters underlined again we know all lives matters we just need your help with hashtag black lives matters for black lives are in danger and i just it's one of those things you see a little picture in this case this could become a meme right it's so succinct it's so perfect this is the problem Black lives are in danger. That is the problem. <laughs> that yeah. is the problem. And, you know, it's, a, it's amazing to imagine that it is still very hard. And I feel that it's hard for people to not only take in, but to imagine living your daily life, imagining that Black life matters. <laughs> you, know? Um, they, you know, sadly, I think we live in a world where people, you know, we are now starting to try to learn what it means to live a life knowing that everybody around you has a different experience. And if you are a person of color, your different experience is largely affected by things you can't control. Mm. Um, and I think we are just now starting to grapple with what it means to live a daily life, recognizing that that's the case. Well, unless there's any concluding thoughts, I want to thank Olivia and Jeffrey for your participation, your insight, and you know that the path this conversation took was the path it needed to take. And I have learned a lot. Um, any concluding thoughts? Well, for me, Darren, I just want to thank you very much. It's you know you, uh, our paths have crossed for the last three or four years or so, and um, I think it is. You know, I, I think it's incredibly uh, brave, actually, um, as a part of the reason that I, you know, um, wanted to have this conversation with you and enjoyed having it is because, you know, it is hard to put yourself out there in an environment where um, people are more likely to want to point and criticize than they are um, put themselves out there themselves. And I think that it's, um, and I, I, I like to thank you. Um, certainly for giving uh, me the opportunity to um, talk about, um, you know, just generally what I think and feel and, and more broadly, uh, this is certainly, I think, one of the things that um, you know, more people and particularly white people can and should do, which is engage in open and honest dialogue um, with a view to making uh, the space you inhabit a better one.
Jeffrey. I will second that, and you know, thank you, Darren, for providing um, the the space for us to have this discussion. It's so um, important, and I think uh, you know, this time being on the the podcast feels like a different um, experience in terms of me being here to learn and versus right uh, being present to impart some sort of specific um, knowledge. So I, I really appreciate this conversation that we had. All right. Well, thank you very much. And should I say happy pride? <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Take that as just sometimes the necessary humor, not to diminish or to dismiss, but to have that little human moment. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the time.